Welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast, a programme highlighting key voices in the intersection of media, politics and public policy. This week, we look at BuzzFeed, arguably the poster child of the current boom in digital media organisations, and how their rise to prominence is upending the traditional media landscape. In the past several years, sites such as BuzzFeed, along with the likes of Vice and Gorka, have matured from spiky upstarts into major players in the news media, while a series of personality-driven projects such as Nate Silver's 538 and Ezra Klein's Vox have also entered the field. Funded by venture capital or backed by billionaires and major corporations looking to target the coveted millennial audience, these organisations have blended digital innovation with traditional journalistic practices to establish a foothold in a crowded market. In the past year, two editors from BuzzFeed visited the Shorenstein Centre to talk about their work and share their thoughts on the current state of the media. In today's show, we'll hear excerpts from those talks with Ben Smith, editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, who spoke in February 2014, and Miriam Elder, world editor, who spoke in September 2014, on some of the ideas driving BuzzFeed's strategy, insight into their business model, and how audiences are receiving their news content. Both Ben Smith and Miriam Elder were hired by BuzzFeed from organisations more typically associated with serious news. Ben was hired from Politico to be BuzzFeed's editor-in-chief in 2011, and in 2013 Miriam was hired to be BuzzFeed's first foreign and national security editor from The Guardian, where she had been the Moscow-based correspondent. Both admitted initial uncertainty about how they would fit in at BuzzFeed due to its reputation at the time. Here's Miriam Elder. So I knew BuzzFeed from my Facebook feed as a purveyor of cats, which I love, <laughs> and lists which, you know, was, were necessary to relax with <laughs> after uh, spending the day reporting in Russia. But, um, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing where I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go do this right away. Um, yeah, it was interesting to be approached. And here's Ben Smith explaining how BuzzFeed's founder, Jonah Peretti, who also co-founded the Huffington Post, pitched the site to him. When this guy, Jonah Peretti, called me up in 2011 saying that he had this site that had a lot of traffic um, and was famous for cute animals called BuzzFeed. This did not initially make a ton of sense to me um, that 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 he was in some way in the same business that I was, and he had this whole spiel about the social web that I didn't really understand. Um, but basically, BuzzFeed had been this laboratory for for trying to figure out what people would share and what people would share, particularly on Facebook. You know, had been pictures of your yourself and your kids and your drunk friends and your pets, and then maybe it was like pictures of other people's cute pets and memes and sort of the web culture images and things. And then, it, you know, by 2011, it was starting to be New Yorker articles and New York Times articles and news. And so this notion that, um, you know, that for a generation of, con- of people consuming news, that the place that they went first was they, they didn't open your web page to your app, they opened Twitter or they opened Facebook, and that the challenge was to punch through to that space was really very much, for a political reporter, already the experience. As Ben Smith explains, BuzzFeed doesn't regard the mix of cats, memes, and serious news as incompatible. People want to be entertained, and they also want to know what's going on in the world. And I think that's sort of the same people. Here's Miriam Elder on the importance of social media to BuzzFeed's approach to distributing news. One of the thinking behind BuzzFeed is that page one is dead, which is a quote that comes from the New York Times Innovation Report, which I don't know if any of you read uh, that came out uh, earlier this year about how, how to approach news on the Internet. And the idea is that kids these days uh, don't really go to 
NewYorkTimes.com, don't go to Guardian.co.uk, uh, don't go to the journals site. They the first thing they do is go to Facebook and Twitter, and that's where they then find their news. And about 75% of our traffic comes from social media. However, as Ben Smith comments, beyond the importance of social sharing, the fundamental approach BuzzFeed takes to reporting and running its news desks has a lot of similarities with legacy media. I think it's not that different. It's about recruiting amazing people and trying to, and pushing them really hard to do stuff that'll break through one way or the other. And I think, I mean, I think the thing is that the standard for what someone will share is really high. Like you can get somebody to click on pretty much anything if you write the right headline, often a very misleading headline. And, and that's, you know, obviously a great web tradition of writing terrible, misleading headlines, you know, Paris Hilton topless, and then it's like her in a convertible. Um, and, uh, and, but no one, I mean, no one is sharing that for a number of reasons. But nobody, but nobody ever shares something that they felt tricked into coming to. People share things that they're interested in, that they like, that they're proud to share. Like, there's no, there's no real trick to that. Miriam echoes Ben's comments and compares her experience of working at BuzzFeed to her prior role at The Guardian. You know, uh, the question that I get a lot of the time is, um, how different is it to work for BuzzFeed versus The Guardian, a more legacy media organization? And uh, I find the similarities to to exist a lot more than the differences. Um, At the end of the day, what we do is uh, meet people and pick up phones, (laughs) which is uh, a lot of, you know, what reporting is. Uh, and I guess what we focus on at BuzzFeed is, can, I'm going to use a really like cliched sentence, but it's kind of like putting the new back in news, I guess. So there's this idea that every story that we do has to push things forward a little bit because that's the only way that BuzzFeed is, uh, is really going to break through. The goal to put the new back in news has been backed up with a significant hiring spree, particularly of internationally based reporters. So I started BuzzFeed World last August. We have a uh, Two reporters in the Middle East, one between Cairo and Tel Aviv, uh, one in Istanbul who focuses on Syria and Iraq, someone in Kiev. So one thing that I really like that we've done is we've uh, we've opened these thematic beats, trying to think of like new ways to cover the world. So we have a, an international LGBT rights reporter based out of D.C. who did a great story on Egypt today. He'll be going uh, to Eastern Europe pretty soon. He's done wonderful reporting from uh, Jamaica, from Uganda... And then we have an international women's rights reporter who's based in Nairobi. I know that's been a really interesting way to, to think of new ways to cover the world beyond just regional beats. Here's the Shorenstein Centre director, Alex Jones, asking Miriam about BuzzFeed's long-term aspirations as a news organisation. Does a BuzzFeed aspire to be something comparable to The Guardian in a journalistic kind of sense? Is it something that, is that the ambition of BuzzFeed? Yeah, I won't compare us to any news organization in particular, but definitely the approach that we have, that I have on my desk, that the politics desk has, that is um, is hiring reporters to do the work. So I think what's happened with a lot of, uh, the way we've seen kind of the evolution of media is there was a big aggregation phase mm-hmm. when you had like the Huffington Posts and this, that, and the other. Yeah, just doing a lot of aggregation and those, those you know, everybody would do the same story. It would be like 20 outlets doing the exact same story. And what we're doing is a lot more old school, which is hiring reporters to live in the countries and do the work. Right now I'm hiring, I'm expanding, I'm doubling my desk, so looking for a reporter in China and Mexico um, and beyond that. Um, So, yeah. It's a wonderful concept that you use 
old school for BuzzFeed, I mean, for, the, for that kind of journalism, because you're right. Having bureaus, having people on the ground is very expensive, and it's uh, not necessarily the most efficient way, and that's what a lot of these news organizations are looking for. But it is where you get new insights and breaking, you know, a, a breaking new way of looking at something. If you look at BuzzFeed, the people overwhelmingly, especially millennials, not go to BuzzFeed.com. They only come in from the side because somebody else is streaming something or they see it on Twitter. Not only, but yeah, 75, overwhelmingly. 75% come from social media. In addition to social media, mobile traffic is a huge consideration for BuzzFeed. As Ben Smith explains, optimizing content for mobile viewing can also impact editorial decisions. We think about mobile a lot. Mobile's... We get more than half our traffic from mobile, and um, and you know in our CMS when you are drafting something, the draft comes up in a mobile. There's like an image of a mobile phone, just because. I mean, I don't think it changes the nature of reporting that much, but certainly art. You know, it has, if you're doing an image, like you really better be able to see what is going on in that image when it's this big. And if you're doing a, hmm. and that's challenging, particularly like there's a kind of really complicated infographic or. It just isn't going to work, and if it doesn't work for more than half your readers, like occasionally there's maybe still a reason to do it, but it's kind of crazy to do something that doesn't work for more than half your readers. And while BuzzFeed is a huge sensation on the web, drawing 200 million monthly visitors and 1 billion video views a month, that doesn't mean that all stories or reports have to match the numbers of the cats in the lists. I think the way we think about sort of numbers is more that, you know, this story has a universe, and you know, this is not science here, although, you know, you get a, a sense of it from looking at numbers all the time, but, you know, maybe 10,000 people might be interested in a scoop about, like, transgender legal developments, like maybe max 10,000 people. Um, and so if Chris Geidner gets that scoop and, like, six or 7,000 people read it, like, that's a pretty good, that's really good. If 12, you know, if, if 200 people read it, we probably did something wrong. So, and you, you know, whereas... The cat, 31 cats who are disappointed in you, like, you know, the potential readership is the entire human race. <laughs> and so if six or 7,000 people read that, it's a disaster. Here's Miriam explaining how this applies to coverage of foreign affairs. BuzzFeed does get really, really great numbers. But that's not to say that, like, I count the success of an article based on the numbers. Like, the numbers aren't viewed in a vacuum. So... The whole idea is to kind of do, like, smart analysis, I guess, relative analysis of the numbers. So, for example, when you do a post about cats, you think, okay, how many people in the world love cats? And what proportion of those people have read this this article or looked at this list? Um, until recently, if I, you know, when I thought that way about Syria, now it's now it's different because people are finally interested, but it was a very grim year. Um, after Obama's walk back last summer where people just, nobody even wanted to know what was going on in Syria. I think there was an active desire to forget that this conflict was going on. We didn't have a million people reading those articles. What I what made me consider a, an article successful was when Mike would do a story and on Twitter I would see, you know, like the that devoted Syria crowd discussing it and talking about like this piece of information he found or whatever and that it was making an impact in those circles. So if the numbers at that point were, you know, 30,000 or something, it would be a success to me. So how does BuzzFeed's business model operate, and how does this impact the editorial side? So I don't spend that much time thinking about the business model. Like We have a very traditional separation between advertising and editorial, and, and the kind of advertising we sell. To me, the closest analogy is like Vogue, is fashion magazines, where if you cut all the ads 
out of Vogue, it would be a worse product. Readers, readers aren't like complaining that there are too many ads. The ads are really beautifully produced and interesting, and of the of the of the type that you know, of the of the genre of content that you're buying the magazine for in the first place, like beautiful photo shoots. There's a strict wall between editorial and business, and even in like the layout of the office, they're completely separate. Um, and then on the business side, there's like there's a creative team, kind of if you think of like what Mad Men was back in the day. So like there's like Mad Men people who work with advertisers to make BuzzFeed-esque content that then goes viral in its own way. It's clearly marked as advertising. So BuzzFeed draws a large international readership, attracts significant investments from venture capital firms, has hired dozens of reporters in various parts of the globe, and recently scored a sit-down interview with President Obama. Are legacy media organisations feeling threatened? Not so, says Miriam Elder, who says the scale of BuzzFeed's investment in original journalism has been encouraging to the industry as a whole. I think it's been really sad for journalism to see foreign bureaus close. When I was in Moscow, one of the you know I went to like the Newsweek bureau closing party, and it's horrible. Nobody wants to see it. Um, so it's actually been really, really encouraging. Really encouraging. I have really good relationships with people like from all sorts of, of, of papers. It's really nice. You can hear both full-length talks and find audio and video from other Shorenstein Centre events at shorensteincentre.org. Thank you for listening to the Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by extrememusic.com.